Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. Hey, Rachel here. Quick, quick. I I just wanted to start with an update on last episode. That's Little Mo. If you haven't listened to that episode, you might want to skip ahead about a minute. So many of you sent in letters to Maureen, and I've just got to say, it was a really incredible response. I delivered all your letters on Saturday. That's May 6th, the 50th anniversary of her run. And then I called her on Monday to talk about it. She told me that she was thankful for the podcast, but it didn't really change the way that she thought about her accomplishment. Your letters, though? Here's Maureen. Wow. 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 It's it's just... So I just... I was going over the letters, and I think that's where it actually... I actually got it. I actually understood I guess over the course of the weekend, I reread a few, and it started to hit me. And my sister-in-law texted me, I sent her, and she said, oh, I was reading them, and I started to cry. <laughs> so the whole thing was just, it was, it was awesome and wonderful. And for everybody who wrote in, it was awesome. So thank you so much. Really, thank you. Now for this week's episode. On her 70th birthday, Rosie Swell Pope went skydiving. But believe me when I say this, on Rosie's list of nutty accomplishments, skydiving at 70 doesn't even place. Well, do I want to be known for carefully looking after my house when I eventually lose my mind and pop my clogs? Or do I want to go crazy? So I've decided the right thing to do at my age is to go crazy. And yes, be loved and give love above all. But now I'm 70. It's like being given a gift, a key. I can do anything I want now. You know, I may end up in the Senior Olympics. I can run 100 marathons. I, can, I may or go off to the moon or somewhere. She might be kidding about that moon thing, but I don't think she's kidding about the marathons. Rosie has a resume posted on her website, and the resume is just a list of her adventures. And the bullet points range from running 27 marathons in 27 days to riding 3,000 miles on horseback in South America from the Atacama Desert to Patagonia. A couple of years ago, I was working on this story about an Australian runner named Tom Dennis. Tom had run around the world, and his wife came with him. She served as his travel agent slash race support slash photographer. 
And as I was researching this story, I found out about another person who'd run around the world. And this time, all on her own. It was none other than Rosie Swale Pope. I'm Rachel Swaby, and this is Human Race. On each episode of Human Race, we tell stories about runners and the world of running. This week, I mean, where do I even start? Close encounters with wolves, sub-70 degree temperatures, Siberia extreme loneliness, and perhaps the most effervescent person I'd ever met, Rosie Swellpope. This is the story of love and loss, a trip around the world and across America. Rosie told me several times that 70 is the new 30. In other words, she's just getting started. I've wanted to interview Rosie for years, but it's not the easiest thing to pin her down. Wales is her home, but for the last two years, she's been running across the United States. She finished in December. Lucky for me, this spring she planned to stay with friends in a small town in Texas. I decided to meet her. So I flew into Dallas and then drove three hours west. Down to Texas, this is 95.9, the ranch, and some serious bull riding is I passed scattered barns and a literal ghost town. When I arrive in Albany, it's mostly a main street. It's a town of 2,000 people, and it only has one store that sells sunscreen. I'm not sure where I would have expected Rosie to be staying, but this quiet little town was definitely not it. As it turns out, she wasn't there at all. And it's for the most rosy of reasons. She was out for a run. Okay, so um, I'm in Albany. Uh, I'm at the place that Rosie's staying, but she's not here yet. So I am going off to find her. As I was unsuccessfully looking for the house that was our pre-arranged meeting place, she called. Oh, Rosie, I'm having, I, I'm, for, I can't hear you because of the wind. I'm off the road. You're off the road. You're on the road. Got it. All right, so, but are you quite far out? Initially, the plan was to run with her into town, and then, you know, we'd sit down for an interview. But Rosie is seven miles short of the finish at this point, and so I'm driving out on this two-lane road, and frankly, it's farther away than I thought I should be driving. And in the distance, there's this bright red spot. Rosie is in a tank top and patterned shorts. She has this visor that pushes back her wild, blonde, shoulder-length hair. But by this description alone, she could be any runner. But you know you're coming up on Rosie because she's pulling a 150-pound cart behind her. This cart kind of looks like a bobsled. It's six feet long and 33 inches high. She's named it Ice Chick. Um, it's attached with a harness that loops around her waist and also over her shoulders. Anyway, so I'm driving and I pull over. I'm doing pretty good. The, the, I haven't used this this cart for much for recently, and so the harness was all wrong, and I had oh, no. to reorganise it completely because it was pulling at my back. But it's a beautiful day, and today yeah. is a it's a, it's called the Green Albany 
marathon, the first inaugural <laughs> marathon. I'm the only runner, so I'm going to win. Plus, I shall also come last. Yeah. I'm more, and I wasn't. A, well, I have not run. I, the Los Angeles marathon was the first marathon I've done since my knee surgery three years ago. Oh, I've wow. run four thousand miles across America, yeah. but that's different because yeah. you can hop in and have a break. <laughs> I feel like I have to say this, but you're going to keep hearing things like she decided to run a marathon this morning and she's pulling a 150-pound cart and that time I ran across America. That's Rosie. We all have this sort of mental calibration system for amazement. And with Rosie, you just have to reset it. Today, I think I'm approaching mile 19 because I've did. i got it saved on this watch. Which is still go- oh, it's going to tell me it's running out of juice. Rosie is still far from the finish, especially far when you consider the load she's carrying. So we decide that the best course of action is to hop into the car and conduct the interview parked on the side of the road. My name is Rosie Swale Pope, and I'm trying to run a marathon today. This is a, a marathon that's been made up. Like I just we, we measured a route, half marathon route out, and then I'm running the same thing back. She jumps in, and I ask her how her run's been going. And it's so beautiful. And indeed, there's been a crowd cheering me on. Just they've got four legs. They're rather nice black cows you see there. (laughs) It's funny. I don't think I would have thought much about those cows gathered in front of the car and the cart before Rosie mentioned them. But as soon as she anointed them an audience... They seem just as amazed at Rosie as I was. In fact, with Rosie in the car, it almost it almost felt like I had trapped a butterfly. I was thankful to be in her presence, but at any moment she could flit away. She would not agree with this characterization, by the way. And I'm nothing special about me, but every time I think I can't do something, every time I think that's not going to work, it always there's always like that, something great happens. And it's usually been just by keeping going, but not just keeping going like you're going to drive against that gate and bash it open. It's being like water, find a way through. In any case, to understand Rosie, to understand why she's on this two-lane road in rural Texas, to understand why she runs with a cart named Ice Chick, to understand why she has a resume that's just filled with adventures, we have to go back to her upbringing, which, you know, as you might expect was unconventional. I was born in Davos, Switzerland. My mother had tuberculosis in those days. It was a wartime romance with my dad who was in the army. And she was in the clinic there. And uh, basically, sadly, she had to give me to a, a foster mother when I was born because of being infectious. And she'd, very sad, she'd look at me out of the window. And Rosie was just two days old when doctors put an ad in the paper looking to find her a foster mother. Out of 45 applicants, Rosie's mother, who was sick with tuberculosis at that time, chose the local postman's wife. You know, we had photos of me and it was so on. So she passed away. The foster mother was wonderful. And she, I remember her running beside the train because my Irish grandmother arrived, who was also an amazing woman. And she snatched me more or less when I was three. And uh, I remember her crying by the train. That was the last memory of her foster mother. Brown hair in a bun, tearfully running as Rosie's train sped away. Rosie's grandmother took her back to Ireland. But by the time Rosie was five, Rosie was doing the caretaking. Her grandmother was crippled, confined to bed due to osteoarthritis. Rosie remembers her grandmother banging her stick on the floor in the middle of the night when she needed help. Other times, her grandmother would scream out in pain. Rosie didn't go to school until she was 13, 
But her grandmother instilled in her a sense of independence and responsibility. But she just said, start with your dreams, not your circumstances. And if you were born uh, and you've got no mother and father anymore, well, that means the world will look after you and you'll probably be a good traveler. You know, you'll probably be an explorer or something. She believed that <laughs> you could do anything. and she. But she also made me realize that you can change the world without moving an inch because you're changing she changed my life and she probably changed other people's lives but I had a nice time because she thought school would teach me to swear she was ter- very religious so basically but I had total freedom I never did anything I was told you know I was but I read I read every book in the house ten times over Rosie gardened and sold flowers at the market she spent a lot of time with animals a dog seven goats a chicken with one leg and a dairy cow named Cleopatra In fact, she said she'd never been afraid of the dark because she was up so early milking the cows. At a young age, Rosie dreamed of running. I I was really bad at running at school. Basically, if you thought a person like me would ever run around the world, you'd think beyond redemption, gone crazy. What does that mean, bad at running? Well, it meant that I was, you would faint in, in church and be dragged up by the heels, and I would be standing there while everyone was, else was chosen for the team, just hoping I wouldn't be the very last again. I really wanted to be good. I think nowadays they'd have thought I had low blood sugar or something. I also got funny knees that even then. Running was something that I did in secret with my pet donkeys you know, and goats because I was clumsy and still pretty clumsy. And so then I was slow and miserable. Now I'm slow and happy because I realized in running, you have to find your strength. But she didn't find her running strength then. Not yet. But what happened about 48 years later, I had, uh, you know, I picked up a copy of Runner's World at the dentist and I got a bit interested in that. Between childhood and age 48, Rosie got married. She sailed around the world with her first husband and daughter. In fact, she had her son during the journey. She got divorced, and in 1983, she sailed solo across the Atlantic. I was very bad across the Atlantic because the salami sausages turned green and had, and, uh, and the potatoes burst, and, you know, I've learned a little more about nutrition and that. Her boat nearly capsized. She was almost run over by an oil tanker. She was at sea by herself for nearly 80 days, the last five of which she went without food. But in preparation for her solo sail, Rosie met a businessman and fellow sailing enthusiast. His name was Clive. And after she returned from her trip, they married. Ten years later, Rosie picked up that issue of Runner's World, and she went out running that evening. And I thought, well, I entered a local race, and I knew I'd come last. I was standing next to the oldest thinnest-looking woman, who we now know is probably an elite runner. And I said, have you been in for this before? She said, not this one. And she sped off. (laughs) And on the second lap, she said, take deep breaths, my dear. But I felt I'd won. I think I came near, very nearly last, but I had a great time. The next year, she ran the London Marathon. And I think it was four hours, seven or four, ten, something like that. I was very happy. And then I saw a marathon in... In Davos, Switzerland. Davos was where she was born. After all, I'm trained for marathons now, and I did think the, the time limit was fairly generous. It turned out it was 12 hours because it is actually 47 miles over the Alps. A newspaper got a hold of her story. Mother with tuberculosis, father at war, long-lost foster mother left weeping at the train. In the newspaper... They found my foster mother, who 
who was 98. The oldest person in town. The oldest person, as if she'd, she'd lived specially to see me again. She still had my photos up, and she waited six hours for me by the finish. She invited Rosie back to her home. And when they arrived, Rosie saw pictures of herself as a young girl still on her foster mother's mantle all those decades later. Her account of that race and her reunion was her first published piece for Runner's World UK, the magazine that inspired her to get started. With sailing, it's, a, it's magical. It's a bit like Death Valley. Well, I love Death Valley and I have many friends there. But basically, running is of the people, around the people, you know, all sea journeys are riven with dreams of landfalls and places. And that the land is the finishing post of the sea anyway, isn't it? I mean, you're sailing somewhere. Yeah. I do what I love. In 1997, she ran across Romania. In 1999, she ran a thousand miles across Iceland. But in June of 2000, something terrible happened. Rosie's husband, Clive, was diagnosed with prostate cancer. This was nearly 20 years after they met on the docks. In 2002, Clive was lying in bed when he pulled up the duvet. His arms snapped. His prostate cancer had spread to his bones. His health went downhill quickly from there, and on June 12, 2002, he died. Rosie was in despair. She wanted to find a way to not only deal with her own feelings of loss but to honor Clive's memory in a way that would do some good. She thought maybe she could run some marathons for him to raise awareness for early cancer screenings. Rosie had a world map up on her wall, and as she scanned the countries and continents, wondering if she could afford to do marathons abroad, through the fog of grief, one clear, undeniable idea. Rosie would run around the world. The story of that run, with sub-75 degree temperatures, near-death experiences, and encounters with people from Siberia to Texas. That's after the break. And we're back. On October 2nd, 2003, Rosie set off from her home in Tenby, Wales. It was her 57th birthday. It was the first day of what she hoped would be a run around the world's northern hemisphere. I can't underline this enough, but when she set off, there just was not a precedent for this. One other person, a 26-year-old from France, had run around the world, but that was pre-GPS watches and social media. Rosie didn't know about his attempt. Someone from England had tried it, but his record was, and still is, in question. In any case, when Rosie looked at that map and made the decision to run around the world, she wasn't following a model set by someone else. She was blazing her own trail. Rosie decided to run east. She'd run through Europe in winter, so by the time she got to Siberia, it would be summer. She'd cross Russia, the Bering Sea, run through Alaska, Canada, the U.S., and up to Newfoundland. Then she'd run in Greenland and the northern part of Iceland, through Scotland, England, and then back to Wales. About 20,000 miles total. She figured the journey would take her several years on the road. When I 
lost my husband, I decided to do, use this technique, since the only thing I'm good at is actually sleeping like a puppy dog by the side of the road. I decided to run with a backpack from London to Moscow. By way of Holland, Germany, Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia. That backpack was nearly 50 pounds. It held, among other things, food, clothes for negative 75 degree temperatures, a little stove, sleeping bags, a bivy, which is a sort of sleeping bag-like shelter thing that you use instead of a tent. It's smaller, more discreet. And all of this is important because Rosie's plan was to sleep where she got tired. She'd find a quietish place off to the side of the road, She'd light her little stove, cook herself something simple like maybe pasta, and then go to bed, like a puppy dog, as Rosie says. Or at least, that was the plan on a normal day. When your plan is to run around the world by yourself, there are many days that are not normal. Take this one day in Germany. She'd been allowed to enter a closed campsite so she could take a shower. But the lights were dim in the building, and she didn't realize that a window had been broken. With bare feet, she ended up stepping on glass. It took her a while to realize that the pain that the glass caused, it wasn't going away. And when she finally sought medical attention, the doctor carved out the glass in her foot and prescribed two weeks of rest. Rosie, of course, only took three days. In Poland, she encountered negative five degree temperatures, which was no problem because Rosie had warm clothes and sleeping bags for that. However, she was running on the side of the road and when trucks drove by, they splashed slushy mud all over her. And so when Rosie tried to wash her hair at one point with melted snow, the water froze on her head, soap and all. I know all these details because Rosie wrote a book about her journey. In fact, I'll have that in the show notes. And on page 91 of that book, I circled a passage that mentioned that her 50-pound pack was giving her back spasms. Now, imagine that you were several countries deep into a world run. Could you imagine waiting that long to discuss the strain on your body? Even that glass in the foot injury passed with a very matter-of-fact explanation. One thing that I was struck by when I was reading the book is I was at page 90 and I was like... I don't think she's talked about her legs the whole time. Well, to be frank with you, there wasn't any problem. You see, I knew, first of all, when I set off, that I had, could not afford to get blisters and stuff too much because there was nowhere to go, nowhere to stop. Uh, but actually, I found, like, after you've done the first 10 days, they, they give up hurting, you know. They get stronger. I learned a trick, and it's quite a good trick, actually. If I had a little wad of kitchen roll or toilet paper, I always carried kind of kitchen towel mostly sorry and if you find you're running and you have a sore thing between your toes you can have a little, if you any paper hanky if you just rub it in your palms of your hand a little and it's a little softer just put it between it's just as good as what you buy in the pharmacies and it stops them hurting and it's get it any time you learn a million tricks i found this answer charming but not very satisfying i mean i'm just a mere mortal but she's running in often very cold temperatures with a 50 pound pack every day of course your legs have to hurt right anyways my setup with rosie this interview we were doing at the side of the road it gave me a better answer So the setup is this, I'm in the driver's seat and she's in the passenger seat. It was really windy out, so I had the car windows rolled up to keep the noise down. 
But while we were in the car, Rosie's iPhone was giving that heat warning alert you usually only get when you're sitting on the beach with your phone in the middle of summer. Rosie was sweating. I mean, she had just completed 19 miles. And I'd done nothing, and I was also sweating. I'm baking us out in this car. It's all right. If you want to take a break, you can take a break, but I'm okay. Okay. I'm, I, I feel remember, bad you're in the sun. No, no. Remember, I've been in Death Valley, yeah. and I've been in Phoenix at 117. Yeah, yeah. I've, got, I've, I've, developed, I've developed toughness. The ability to move through pain or discomfort is clearly a learned behavior. Some marriage of physical and mental strength. Me, I rolled down the car's back windows... I did not have the toughness. Anyways, back to the journey. In Russia, Rosie swaps out her pack for something with wheels. And then I got a baby jogger given to me from Mother Care Moscow. Like many runners, I was running with the little jogger over the Ural Mountains. And it was, and then that was great, but then it kept getting punctures and it was rather small. It was not a specially built runner's one like you get these days. She named the jogger Columbine after a horse she loved as a child. She was a curious sight, a lone traveler in rural places. And everywhere she went, she met people who offered her food and company. She even got a few marriage proposals. They're the kind of encounters that make me wonder why I feel nervous running at night. Because in Russia, if you meet a gang of, let's say, youths with knives and guns and drinking vodka at seven in the morning, you know, just say, hi, how's your mum? And you usually find they're really nice, it's just a different thing. But There were only a few situations that escalated beyond that. 300 miles east of Moscow, two men hit Rosie with the butt end of a knife and tried to drag her into the forest. Feeling clearly concerned for her well-being, Rosie pushed her buggy out in front of an oncoming truck. And it startled the men enough that they let her go and Rosie ran off. In fact, she ran for hours with the men trailing her. She did lose them eventually, but they were hanging on there for a while. You know, when I I read about this encounter, I thought a lot about fear. I'm exactly half Rosie's age, and I know people say confidence grows with experience. But sometimes I feel like, for me at least, fear is going in the other direction. Leading up to this interview with Rosie, I read her book... And a lot of the time I was curled up in a ball on my bed grinding my teeth. In superhero movies, the protagonist gets into kind of unimaginably bad situations. But you watch feeling confident that their quest will somehow be successful and their life will be spared. Following along with Rosie's journey sometimes felt like that. But then I'd have to keep reminding myself that she was a human. And that's when I'd grind my teeth again. I wanted to ask you about fear because I think that's that's one of the things that stops so many people from doing the things they want to do. And as I was reading through your book, there were so many moments that I think that most people would be terrified. I mean, when the cold just got so cold, when there were like feet of snow above you, when your foot was frozen in an ice block. I mean, when you got run over by, by a bus, all of these things would have been endings for many people. You can be frightened. And uh, I believe people have false fear. Uh, there is real fear. Obviously, if you're being chased by an animal or it's minus 60, if you were saying, oh, it's a nice, you know, you'd be wrong. But I believe caution is more useful than fear. I mean, I wrote somewhere, but it was much too facile that, you know, I haven't done anything unusual. I just gave up fear. And since then, my life has been amazing. What I mean is I gave up unnecessary fear. 
people, people. I don't know why people get stopped, but the, the, in on the wilderness situations I was in, you can't stop because if you stop, you die. And so basically, you know, there's no sort of saying, "Oh, take me out of this race." You know, there's no nobody to help you. But I, I, I ever think about my husband and all those people with cancer lying there in the palliative care ward. I think that's that that's frightening. You know, wolves and bears and naked men with guns and men with axes and the cold is nothing. Pity to let your life be ruined by fear. Most things are much safer than you think, particularly if you think carefully how to do them. It's not what you do, it's the way you do it. Rosie says one way to curtail fear, or at least unnecessary fear, is preparation. She gave me this example from the Los Angeles Marathon this March. It's almost a crime in my book to go out without preparation. You know, I know I, I woke up uh, the, full, the day before. I was staying with some charming people out there in Santa Monica. And the, the idea had been that one of the ladies was going to drive me to, to be there at three in the morning when I meant to be. I realized that wasn't the thing to do. She felt like she wanted to be there earlier. So she arranged a ride in order to arrive at 1 a.m. in the morning. I was the first one there. I made several friends. Then I curled up near where the luggage thing, you hand in your bags, I had a little snooze. And then eventually I was the first one there. I was able to use it. In other words, I took all the strain off myself and uh, as, that I could. And in every, I've learned that it just, that's, then you can, you can then banish fear. At least you have to, because if you're too frightened, you can do nothing. You feel sick. You know, it's like when sailing across the Atlantic and the waves might cave the hull in, and I w- you'd be shaking, and, you know, your heart would be thump- thumping in your stomach, but you can't do anything. And I think in war, which is far more dangerous than anything I've ever done, it's the same, you know, somehow the mind can control fear, because not fear is dangerous. During her world run, however, loneliness was a bit harder to control. In Siberia and Alaska, solitude would stretch for days, which frankly is a little hard for me to imagine now, sitting in front of Rosie, because, you know, she's such a chatterbox. I would always be saying, Rosie, shall I take a breath for you, darling? After losing her husband, the time away from her family was hard. On this journey, she would go years without seeing her children. And with Clive, It was loneliness without a reunion at the end. Loneliness beyond words, she wrote, which is saying a lot for Rosie. Over time, though, she developed her own Rosie-like way to cope. It's like calling the stars after my family. You've got to find ways to make it better. At night, she'd find two stars and call them her children, Eve and James. Then she'd feel as if they were looking down on her. But you don't want to just be happy, otherwise you'd be, be stupid just to try to force yourself to be happy. When you know, I'm all fine and safe when you're, you've got to fight and plan. But on the other hand, you've really got to also take in the joy of it. It's, it's a funny thing. I call it imagination on a leash. You know, you don't want to really think you're Napoleon. <laughs> and it can't be really... Mad- but I do imagine I'm eating chocolate when I'm eating walrus blubber or having a nice, delicious glass of red wine when I'm drinking, you know, water with grit in it. She's not kidding about that walrus blubber, by the way. So Rosie continued on, and she faced what would surely be, for other people, journey-stopping circumstances. But as she said earlier, like water, she likes to find a way through... And she does this often cheerfully. Take this example in Siberia. Her running shoes had worn down beyond use, 
but her new ones hadn't arrived yet. A stranger dropped off a pair of what Rosie calls carpet slippers. So Rosie layered them with insoles from her running shoes, and she continued on like this for days, praising, of course, the kindness of the passing stranger. Hundreds and hundreds of people have stopped me by the side of the road and have looked after me, and, and you can usually make every situation 20% better by the way you think about it. And everything better by the way you think about it, really, not just bad situations, but... On another day, Rosie ran with a terrible fever. She didn't know it at the time, but she was so sick that she was weaving all over the road. Weaving so much that she was actually hit by a bus. Of course, Rosie saw this as a blessing. It's only because of that collision that she was taken into the hospital and diagnosed with double pneumonia. Doctors said the medicine and eight days in the hospital probably saved her life. In what is now a typical Rosie twist, the bus driver that hit her actually picked her up from the hospital and helped her prepare for the next leg of her journey. It was very, very tough, but the, but even so, despite all the frostbite and the fact that Nellie died about eight times, <laughs> the, the resounding feeling is blessing for it and the, for the beauty I saw, and you can't get it other ways. The beauty of being in those Siberian forests that are endless, Siberia meaning land without end, the the aurora borealis sparkling on the frozen Yukon River and the wolves howling in the distance and the sheer magic and the fact that you learn about freedom. You learn freedom isn't something you get given, you choose it. And that's what I found with the people in Siberia. They have inner freedom, you can't take it away even if you unfortunately end up dead. Death, by the way, was something Rosie faced in a very real way several times during her run. Rosie ran through Russia and then hopped over the Bering Sea and started running in Alaska. And in Alaska, she ran through sub-75 degree temperatures. I can't actually wrap my mind around how cold that is. Rosie said that at some point she was afraid to sleep for fear she'd die. She'd have to use a knife to hack off her sock, which was frozen solid to her foot. I'm nothing special, but I've learned slowly there's no failed pupils in the wilderness, otherwise you get eaten or frozen. And it's one thing to wear icicles for earrings, but you really don't want to be encased in ice. Like a, <laughs> of course, she's lighthearted about it now. And I was like a Michelin woman. I could sew wide in long johns and down leggings and everything. I mean, I didn't see my body for weeks. <laughs> Some days, the conditions were so bad that she'd travel only 100 meters. By this time, she'd gotten a specially made cart named... Hercules. That cart was covered and human-sized, so she slept inside of it. But in sub-75 degree temperatures, going to bed was a process. It started by getting into four or five sleeping bags and reindeer skin inside her cart. Then she had to get her snowshoes off. Get them off and massage your feet. Neglect your feet, you get frostbite. That's what happened to me. Then you just rub them and you put them in the rather wet sleeping bag. And that's the first job done. Then immediately you've got to have a bag of snow in from outside. And then you have only one go usually at light in the stove. You have a you know one some some lighting device that you've had in bed with you to keep it get it warmer. You have one go, and if I, I usually have a little stub of candle in case that blows out because that is life or death. And then you just watch. In fact, you bless your good kit. Remember, I've got about five coats on, reindeer skins, four sleeping bags, six foot by 30 inches, petrol stove, and just next to my nose, I could pour some precious warm water into you know, a cup and drink it. 
that was the first critical thing. Then to heat more, to eat. Eating didn't really matter. It was spaghetti all the time. Because I couldn't carry, you couldn't have anything like cooked things because they'd freeze and you couldn't afford nor carry things like freeze-dried things. You couldn't do it. You just had to put something basic in your stomach. Spaghetti and anything else you could get, you know. I used to carry garlic a lot because you could put that in your socks and keep it from freezing because everything freezes and gets ruined. You mustn't wear the socks or the garlics in them. <laughs> and after that, what you do is you cook the spaghetti and you eat it and that will heaten up your core and if you see if I have a vitamin pill I would eat one I'm poor at you know eating them regularly but they're very good you should have a good multivitamin pill if you went on an expedition like that we never invite anybody to go on an expedition like that all by themselves but anyway then then you know I would eat that and then I would snuggle down in the sleeping bags and then you could sleep but by then you'd have washed the socks so you can understand all this work and in the morning it all starts again but I mean a battle is lost or won in that sort of run by the preparation and the good thing is because of the concentration of being of being alone really uh a i could make mistakes and nobody realized nobody let a laugh at me but also i could concentrate and focus hard and uh, i did this every day it was half the time i spent looking after yourself during this time hercules was having problems in the snow oh yeah that that moment when you were dragging your buggy hercules through the like five foot snow exactly. i just i felt sick to my stomach i'm glad you identified that because that was terrible you see you had a bar around it. it was perfect for the ice but when the deep snow it just became like an anchor and hercules was no good so we got the, i was lent lucky to be lent one of those sleds with a cover that in a, i did a rod husky race well the walkers they're people that walk it apparently so one of them lent me this and then it only lent that cart was given back and swapped for charlie Charlie weighed 252 pounds. And with this cart, Rosie crossed from Alaska to Canada. And she ran in Canada before dipping down into the U.S., into North Dakota. And Charlie was a cart with a, with a hood on it, you know, cover on it. It went all the way across America. Then it got rather worn out, and indeed it was a little heavy. It got sinking in the snow, and it wouldn't go on its skis because you couldn't get long enough skis that would, without tripping your legs. Or So basically, Charlie retired and is still in a barn in Shipshawana. Shipshawana is a town of 658 people in Indiana. Then Rosie ran through Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, including New York City, and Maine before going back to Canada. Since there were no direct flights from the US, a mining crew invited her on their plane to Greenland. And then she continued on to Iceland. The Amish people, um built Iceberg, the one on the cover of the book. Her next cart looked like an extended wagon with a domed yellow tarp on top. Iceberg was only meant to be aluminium. Well, she was only meant for the easy part, so she was aluminium, which is not that good. But we went through 100-mile-an-hour winds in Iceland, and the shafts got bent this way and that way. Rosie finally returned to Wales via Scotland and England after five years. Five years. And her finish was nothing short of dramatic. In August 2008, Rosie was just 32 miles from the finish. She wakes up like any other day, but this day, she couldn't walk. Turns out she had two stress fractures in her hip. Doctors thought it was the result of a nasty fall she'd taken over the summer that had broken a couple of her ribs. Again, to do this kind of rosy mental recalibration... Broken ribs are nothing to stop you from your run. Anyways, this fall, it weakened her hip, which decided to quit out just before the finish. 
A friend makes the suggestion that maybe Rosie should just go home and finish the last few miles later. But the idea makes Rosie distraught. She spends several days in the hospital before convincing a surgeon that really she can make it home on foot. There are pictures of Rosie's finish splashed across newspapers. The pictures of her show Rosie looking strong, even hobbling forward on crutches. She's hauling Ice Chick behind her, one very slow step at a time. A big crowd of people from her hometown gathered to welcome her in. It's like it's the biggest part of the adventure is arriving home. Just thank you, thank you, thank you. This is from a video Rosie's daughter took. Rosie is addressing the crowd right after her finish. It's a little hard to hear. I'm a real, I hope everybody has a dream, whatever it is that it comes true. Because we all have dreams, and this is just a humble one. It's just putting one slow foot in front of the other. I applaud all the young people and old people and everybody. And truly, I'm now 29 again, and I believe like... She says she believes that she's 29 again. It's like human magic. It's far beyond any silly adventures like being chased by wolves or frozen death. It's about youth, people, and thank you, Rosie. Five men have run around the world since Rosie did it. They very recently set up some general guidelines for this type of run, too. The group has kind of standardized this and figured out a minimum amount of miles that you would need to do to qualify for a world run. And and that number of miles is 16,300. On Rosie's journey, again, that's before all of this, she ran 20,000 miles. Several of the recent attempts have been geared towards speed, to get around the world as fast as possible. Rosie's goal was always... Awareness for early cancer screenings, meeting people, sharing her story, and reaching out. Even in this very small group, she's still unique. It's been nine years since her incredible finish. And when I pulled up to Rosie running on a rural road in Texas, she looked just as strong, or in the absence of crutches, even stronger. This December, Rosie completed a two-year journey across the United States with her new cart, Ice Chick. You know, the last, last journey was, a, was an attempt to turn a devastatingly sad situation around. This one was of happiness, because I, I believe it's, well, as all runners know, you know, every uh, running is so precious, but it's, it's even better. It's a great way to deal with sorrow. The funny thing is, with my husband, it's much harder to get over uh, great things in the past than bad things, yeah. so, and so basically. But now I felt that if you if you if you stay in the past, that's why there's no finish line. Then it it, it comes and kicks you in, in the face like a pony or a cow, you know, following the scraps. That, but if you just let it say say that's okay and go even the smallest step forward, both in running and in life, then it follows you sweetly and becomes part of the present. She ran the L.A. Marathon in March, and she's currently training to run 10 marathons in 10 days. In other words, at 70, Rosie is accelerating. And I've got to say, she's astonishing to take in in person. She's so vibrant and chatty. In fact, I check on her several times. It seems somehow morally wrong to coop her up in this parked car. The road is my home. I mean, I don't go home to recover. I don't believe there is no finish line. There is no... Um, I just like doing it. And although on the run across America, I had no rules about sleeping in ice chick, I slept 
it did about 92% of the time. 92% of the two years it took her to cross the country, Rosie slept in her cart. I've got to go to a motel, a little cheap motel, and I think, ah, for one day, one night. But after that, I'm bored. I'm never bored by side of the road. It's a silly cart, and, and, but I like living it. I really do. I really, really don't believe I belong in a house anymore. It's serious. I'll have to get therapy. Do you have a house? No, because I sold my house to... I didn't sell my house while I was running around the world. I stayed in it, but then I got... Then one day the kitchen needed doing it would cost 200 pounds or whatever. I thought dollars, whatever. And I thought, I don't, I'm not interested in the kitchen. You know, I'd rather spend 200 dollars or pounds doing something I love. No, when you're as old as me, you realize life is extra precious and you need to go to the world, not wait for the world to come to you. Rosie likes to say that she's nothing special. She's ordinary. In fact, she says it a lot. Many people have done a lot more. I mean, people are scientists, doctors, nurses. I'm nothing. But I enjoy my adventures, and they've all been, they've got better. I've got a little better at them. But here in front of me, there's someone talking excitedly about running 27 marathons in 27 days, the people she's met and the things she's learned. And I am truly not convinced. So you you define ordinary as just you're ordinary because you are just doing something you that you love. Exactly. Yes. And and I wish to increase my capacity for giving back. And you might say, but you know, now I'm older, I have much more chances, because it'll be like the dog playing the piano. Not that the dog doesn't have to play the piano well, just that that he does it at all. So basically, I'm hoping to get more athletic. I'm hoping to stay strong. Anything can happen. I got a taste for for uh, doing silly things to get attention for serious things when I ran around the world because I knew that if I stayed home crying or just talking, who'd listen to an ordinary woman like me? Not even a good runner, just a slow old runner. But if you run around the world, the thing is I learned that good is stronger than evil and that you must make the most of life and you should go for your dreams. Rosie trusts that many little steps can make a globe-sized difference. She made it through Alaska some 100 meters at a time. And this most recent trip, crossing the U.S., she ran only until her body decided to stop. So even as other runners are setting records, speeding across the U.S. in a matter of months, Rosie's goal this time around was to connect with people, to empower them, and to show them that anything is possible. But on her run across America, she went through her own revelation— In this little town of Albany, Texas, Rosie met a man named Ronnie Waters. On the street, like she meets everyone else. After she met him, they kept in touch. Ronnie drove out to drop water for her when she ran through Death Valley. And the really Ronnie won my heart completely because he he drove all the way to California with a borrowed trailer to bring my buggy back. (laughs) Because I can't be without it. In fact, I find it hard to live in a house. California was the finish of her run across America. When she reached it, she realized that she'd like to dedicate more of her time to the people she loves. Her family back in the UK and her dear friends in Albany, Texas. Nothing would please me better than setting off tomorrow with Ice Chick, everyone being nice to me, me running to to Nashville somewhere. But I have a family. And I need to, I love them. I've always talked about the fact that the real marathon, the real adventure, the biggest adventure is every day of life. I don't want to just be running around the world forever and ever and then telling people how to live their ordinary lives. 
I think I need to look, go to my grandchildren's stuff more often, and I enjoy going to Ronnie's ones when I can. So I'm going to do short, sharp adventures, and then when really nobody wants me, uh, and I'm really, really old, then I'll run around the world again. This episode of Human Race was produced by me, Rachel Swaby, with feedback from Christine Fennessy, Brian Dalek, and Sylvia Ryerson. Theme music is by Danny Cock. David Willey is the editor-in-chief of Runner's World and the editor-in-chief of this podcast. Human Race is a proud part of Panoply. 